Welcome to another episode of NeuroTalk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar, brought to you by Neurite West. I'm David Lipton, a neuroscience graduate student here at Stanford. Today, our guest is Dr. Peter Benditini, chief of the section on functional imaging methods at the NIMH and director of the fMRI core facility at NIMH. We'll be speaking with him today about pioneering fMRI as a way to observe human brain activity, pushing the limits of human brain imaging, and the potential future clinical impact of this famous neuroscience method. All this and more coming up. We're here with Dr. Peter Benditini, Chief of the Section on Functional Imaging Methods at the NIMH and Director of the fMRI Core Facility, also at NIMH. Thank you for speaking with us today, Professor Benditini. My pleasure, my pleasure. So first, we um, just like to start the interview off with um, asking you about um, what you were like as a kid and basically how you got interested in science and found your way, uh, in your case, into doing um, a degree in physics before uh, getting involved in neuroscience? Uh, yeah, well, um, so I was pretty much, um, uh, even in grade school, I was, I was really interested in the brain. And I liked puzzles a lot too. So I like, I think that's what led me into sort of wanting to do science, but I, I like puzzles. But also I think my dad was um, an influence. He actually taught psychiatry, like psychology in high school. Mm -hmm. And he was always talking about the brain. So that made me interested in the brain. But at the same time, I think by high school, you know, I saw it really cool. I remember seeing this Scientific American sort of highlighting like the latest, like in CT images, looking at, at brain perfusion yeah. and whatever. So that was pretty inspiring too. But um, but I think actually I, I wanted to, I was interested in the brain, but I also wanted to get into sort of like the, the hard science angle of the brain as opposed to through biology. I mean, so the technical, technically high hard science. I also I was kind of hedging my bets. Uh -huh. I, was, I wasn't sure whether I wanted to become an engineer. I didn't wasn't sure whether I wanted to, you know, what I wanted to get into exactly. So I figured, okay, I'll take pre-med courses. I'll take physics. And then I ended up yeah. just sort of going more towards the brain anyway. So that was good. And so was there a particular um, moment when you um, decided to go uh, more towards the brain? I mean, I know you, you entered graduate school to study biophysics and then... Yeah. Yeah. So I was actually, I always had the brain in the back of my mind. So the, in the biophysics department was, uh, it was unique in, that, in the sense that it was sort of focused on all kinds of different uh, measurement techniques. Uh -huh. And one of them was MRI. And, and a big part of MRI was looking at the brain, whether it was looking at blood flow or anatomy or whatever. So I thought, okay, I'll just get into that and then see if I can come up with a technique or maybe develop a modification of some technique like spectroscopy or whatever to look at, at brain metabolism as opposed to anatomy or brain function. So, mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so I think that's kind of, I was always trying to sort of kind of position myself sort of in a, in a a graduate school that would sort of have the most opportunity for sort of getting into uh, studying the brain ultimately. So, wow! So this is very intentional <laughs> the the whole time. I mean, you went in uh, studying physics, but with the you know objective of designing better methods to measure brain activity, and that's exactly what you did. That was kind of a goal, and and yeah, it looks intentional. I mean, it's sort of thinking back on it, it was kind of intentional. But in fact, I kind of lucked out in terms of kind of being at the right place at the right time. Um, working with yeah. you know, really good people in our department and kind of being right at the cusp of the beginning of fMRI. So, so I was working with this guy, Eric Wong, who's actually now a professor at UCSD. Um, he built these grading coils, you know, everything was sort of just set up nicely uh, in our department, in our biophysics department, to sort of 
jump into fMRI at least when it when it came about. So yeah. So it was a little bit of luck, a little bit of a little bit of trying to gotcha. plan. So. Uh, as you mentioned, you were one of the first people to pioneer uh, really the use of the technique fMRI. You were working then as a graduate student at the Medical College of Wisconsin with doctors James Hyde and Scott Hinks. Um, so prior to fMRI, what was the best way of measuring neural activity in vivo in awake behaving humans? And sort of if you can describe the landscape of the field as it was when you jumped in, um, what was it like? Yeah. So. Uh... So pretty much the landscape was, um, I mean, PET had just, positron emission tomography had, had kind of started about five to ten years beforehand. Uh -huh. uh, there was xenon CT washout techniques that, that allowed you to get sort of a, a measure of metabolism flow in the brain. Pretty invasive, though. Um, their EEG was, was going on. I mean, EEG was always around. It wasn't really used for doing much other than like looking at epilepsy or, or some electrophysiologic, or actually, the, or, or some sort of uh, psychophysical experiments or things like that. MEG uh -huh. um, was just kind of starting too. Uh, it was super expensive. They were hoping maybe there were some clinical applications, but that's about it. With MRI though, there was really that much. There was spectroscopy and also something called chemical shift imaging, which, which allowed uh, you to look at specific uh, metabolites potentially related to brain activity or brain or ongoing brain function, and it was but it's it's not very sensitive. It was really took a long time to average, and so it really was kind of cumbersome for a, a useful technique for looking at brain function. So so there was nothing out there with MRI, and maybe flow imaging was interesting, but that wasn't yeah. looking at brain function either. So the landscape was pretty bleak as far as um, a technique that your you know your average researcher can just kind of jump in and sort of use. And so what, what was probably the best for um, measuring the types of things that fMRI can in terms of um, being able to go deep into the brain and, you know, what was the, the gold standard then? Uh, the gold standard was pretty much PET, yeah. uh, sort of um, pioneered by Mark Rakel, uh, uh, Peter Fox, uh, those people at Wash U. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, they actually, and there's other people in, in um, uh, in Europe as well, but um, but yeah, they were actually doing PETs, and they were doing they're studying uh, blood flow with PETs, blood flow changes with PETs, and and a little bit of metabolism as well, as far as looking at metabolic changes with with different tracers. So so that was it. Mm -hmm. That was it. It was expensive. It was slightly invasive, um, yeah. and kind of slow. Yeah. So then, fMRI comes along, and can you uh, briefly uh, describe to? Sort of neuroscientists from all fields. I mean, I uh, study C. elegans, and you know, they're um, neuro <laughs> neuroscientists are definitely familiar with the technique. But um, maybe a synopsis of how fMRI works and um, how this provided advances over uh, PET. Let's say. Yeah. Okay. Um, well. Well. First of all, just a, a quick sort of uh, essential concepts yeah. of MRI. So MRI. Uh, it's based on mostly, almost 99.9% .9 of MRI is based on looking at the, the, the water in your body. So it turns out water is unique in a sense that it has a magnetic moment, or protons have a magnetic moment that persists at the frequency that's exactly related to the magnetic field that they're experiencing. Mm -hmm. So it's nice in a sense because then you can put a person into a three Tesla scanner and what you do is then, then the spins are processing you give an RF pulse. So it's actually a radio frequency that it just turns out that they're processing at about radio frequencies. Uh, you give an RF pulse to excite the spins and they give off an echo. So they give off a signal. And so that's what you're detecting with MRI. So it really, and then so there's other ways of sort of uh, making an image from that. But that's the basic concept that, that protons 
process, they receive energy from our RF pulse, they give back signal. And so it turns out that with, with fMRI then, uh, yeah. uh, blood is, is really unique. Blood has a really interesting property that um, uh, uh, the red blood cells, based on whether they're bound to oxygen or not, uh, distort the magnetic field uh, a little bit. So when they're uh-huh. unbound, they're what's called uh, paramagnetic. And that, that causes a distortion in the magnetic field. And so you have protons right around the red blood cell that are processing at different uh-huh. frequencies. And they, and they get out of phase with the rest of the protons. So the signal goes down, is, is lowered. Okay. So with, with brain activation, so it turns out then with brain activation, you have an increase in flow and you have an increase in blood oxygenation. And that causes less of this paramagnetic blood and more of the of more blood that sort of, sort of is, has the same susceptibility as the rest of tissue doesn't cause these field distortions and so the signal goes up just a little bit as the blood becomes more oxygenated okay so all the spins become more coherent essentially so that's kind of mri the basic concept of mri um, and the basic concept of of fmri in a nutshell that this red blood cell is sort of an endogenous contrast agent that distorts or undistorts magnetic fields that causes protons to either be in phase or coherent or or out of phase. Okay. And so that, that modulates the signal. And that gives you the bold signal, the blood and, oxygenation um, exactly. signal. Exactly. That gives you what, yeah, what's uh, Ogawa uh, back in 89 coined as bold. Okay. Yeah. And is yeah. it the, uh, the protons spin at the same, or excited by the same radio frequency? It's just whether they're coherent and spinning or distorting the field or not? Right, 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 exactly. Um, yeah, so they're, they're all, the protons are all excited by a generally a broad, a sort of a, a somewhat broadband okay. frequency excitation. And, and it just so happens, though, as they're, what's called, there's, there's a lot of things, jargon terms in MRI called relaxation. As they're relaxing, uh, they relax, the signal uh, becomes dephased at different rates. And so it becomes dephased much faster around deoxidated blood. So that's, that's the idea okay. then. So the first images were with Ogawa. He had these animals in which he actually deprived them of oxygen. Mm-hmm. And so if you do that, all of a sudden everything turned dark in the image as the blood became deoxygenated. And so he actually predicted, he's, in one of his early papers before brain activation came mm-hmm. about, he said, well, maybe with brain activation, as, you, as your increase in, in metabolism pulls more oxygen from the blood, the brain will get darker uh, as it becomes yeah. more active. When, it, when in fact, it's the opposite. He predicted that Bold will be useful for brain activity, but he got the sign wrong yeah. initially. That, uh, and so then it, we went, you know, when we first had our experiment, we had to go back to the literature, and there's a lot of evidence from PET that, in fact, blood flow goes up and oxygenation, there's an overabundance of oxygenation in active areas. So that's the basis of, of the bold signal. The signal goes up because of this overabundance of oxygen. So now can you describe some of the early experiments that you were involved in? So um, you recently uh, put together this review of 20 years of fMRI and um, described this 1991 science cover and then you published your paper shortly thereafter in 1992 um, where uh, you had individual human subjects do different um, tasks and then uh, measure this signal that you could read out of their activity. So can you describe uh, both you know that original science paper and then and then your uh, contribution early to the field as a graduate student? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that science paper was huge. Um, it didn't use bold, actually. That was a, a first science paper uh, published by Jack Beliveau, actually, at MGH. Mm-hmm. He used a, a contrast agent 
that was paramagnetic as well, but actually it gave maps of blood volume and it was detecting blood volume changes in the brain. It was highly invasive and it was just based on a bolus, it was a, but it was a beautiful experiment, kind of inspired us all. But, but even before the ink was dry in that article, uh, he mm-hmm. had a colleague, Ken Kwong, who was one of the first people who did bold uh, that actually said, well, you don't need any contrast agency, just put a person to scan or shine light in their eyes. So all along, I was actually, as I was a graduate student now, as a first or second year, I think I was a second year graduate student, working mm-hmm. with Eric Wong, uh, who was developing uh, grading coils for doing high-speed imaging, uh, so you can collect a time series of images, um, and, and also developing uh, this high-speed imaging technique called echoplanar imaging as well. So, so the grading coil and the pulse sequence was essential. And so, so we, when I was a graduate student, we actually went to this meeting actually in, in San Francisco, um, mm-hmm in which Ken Kwong presented some first preliminary results. And we had just gotten the grading coil going, we got the pulse sequences going, but we didn't do the experiment. And so when, we, when Eric and I saw this experiment, we're like, oh my gosh, this is incredible. Um, I, real, I realized, well, if this works, I have a thesis project. And <laughs> yeah. Um, so we went back after the meeting and tried it, and almost immediately it worked. Although we kept on seeing the signal go up. With, with, so we put it, so I was, a, I was the first volunteer for fMRI. Put my head in the subjects, we sort of localized based on what we knew about the homunculus. So we didn't have a visual simulation mm-hmm. method. Uh, we didn't have a projector going into the scanner. So yeah. I think we figured the next best thing was just tapping our fingers and, and looking at the motor yeah. cortex. And so we kind of localized that. We had a big, thick slice kind of just going right across the, the brain. I went in. When he yelled the scanner, tap your fingers, stop tapping your fingers. We brought it out, and uh, and it worked, and it just worked, and it was. And so wow. we, we kept the signals going up, and we're, then we went back in the literature and realized, wait a second, they're supposed to go up, but they don't. They shouldn't go down, and so then we wrote it up. So, so you were the very first person to be, have their brain scanned in fMRI uh, at at where I was uh, at the Medical College of Wisconsin. I think the other first people were probably Ken Kwan, and then in Minnesota there was another group. Um, uh, I think it was uh, Camille Uberbill's uh, wife, uh, Jenna Ellerman, or whatever. So, so I was one of the first. I was one of the first. I think that it was all during the summer, the spring to fall of 1991. So in the spring, yeah. Ken Kwong did his first experiments. Then probably Minnesota did their experiments. And then by uh, September, I did my experiments. And so uh-huh. we're all kind of there. Although the paper, so it was... Here's a, a funny story about, what, as a graduate student, I didn't really think, I was just happy to get a, have a thesis project. Yeah. Um, and I was also uh, 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 sort of, uh, you know, I didn't really, wasn't aware of like what pla- places to publish. And so I'm like, well, forget science. I'm not gonna, I'm just gonna do it as a, as a communication in magnetic resonance in medicine. Yeah. So, it, and, and it turns out that Ken's paper and Ogawa's paper were, I think, uh, were both submitted to science. They're both rejected from science because it was too. They were, their results were too similar to that first science paper. Mm-hmm. So all along, I just submitted straight to MRM, and it got accepted within a month, and it became the first paper at fMRI. Even though I never claimed to have the first experiment, but uh, yeah. so it's just kind of quick and dirty. I just got it out there. So wow. Well, I saw those those figures of the. Um the measures of the activation and it's amazing that just from tapping you saw you know this really um marked increase and you you know tapped with your left hand and you saw that the signal in the right uh you know the contralateral hemisphere and then and then the opposite yeah yeah i, I never get tired of seeing that signal and that well, as a graduate student it was it was totally mind-blowing it was it was like it just blew us all away yeah. and we could see this thing and and 
yeah, we felt like we we hit the jackpot, and so wow. I think we did. But yeah, anyway. twenty years later, <laughs> uh, there's certainly a lot of uh, papers based on that work. So, was there some initial resistance um, to the notion that fMRI was actually measuring increases in neural activity? I mean, you have this bold signal, and that's uh, as you described an indirect readout of uh, brain activity. I think there are some subsequent experiments over the years that really show that now we know it's really reading out um, activity of populations of neurons. But how how long did that take to sink in? Um, well, I mean, there there are a bunch of field. first early. Yeah, in the field. I mean, as far as the field, there were there were a lot of people who were already doing. So there were a whole bunch of cognitive neuroscientists who who had you know all these really nice behavioral studies, mm -hmm. and I think those are the first who gravitated to MRI. And also the vision scientists, people like Marty Cerrito, and 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 who really understand deeply organization of visual cortex uh, with with electrophysiologic studies with monkey studies so they went they they gravitated to fMRI and also and that included Logothetis as well mm -hmm. um, but also the early adopters they 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 I think the evidence was so clear even from the start so yes we, we you know using doing the definitive electrophysiologic experiments was essential but even before that when you tap your fingers and all you see is the, the uh, opposite motor cortex lighting up yeah. it's that's pretty clear yeah. and then if you tap your fingers at a certain frequency it goes up and then at a lower frequency it goes down that's sort of a clear that's somewhat proportional to um, the level of activity in some way yeah. but so people actually kind of believed it all the way along um, but but then you're you're right though whether and then the big questions were you know what are the large trading vein effects uh, what's the resolution what's the temporal resolution um, and other things like that, sort of, sort of uh, trying to more get at the details of the technique, uh, were, were sort of open questions. But I think it just caught on so quickly, not only because it works so well, yeah. but because there are all these scanners all over the world already uh, that were already equipped to do fMRI just because of the success of fMRI. Yeah. Uh, for other, you know, for clinically. So. Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, as I understand, you then um, got into this question of the temporal nature of the fMRI signal um, when you went to do a postdoc at MGH with Bruce Rosen and you uh, published a paper showing that uh, blood flow and blood oxygenation state remained high throughout an entire period of long-term activity. So can can you describe those findings in a little bit more more detail? Yeah, I mean, there are a couple of things I, I did at MGH. MGH was a great place to be overall. It was one of the, the hotbeds of, of doing fMRI. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, one of the sort of funny... It, it was in, in retrospect, it's kind of a funny controversy because there's all these controversies in fMRI. Like, you know, there's various dynamics of the signal. Like, what's the post undershoot or what's the pre undershoot? Is it like volume changes or metabolic changes or whatever? But this is one of them. This was like basically Jens Fromm uh, was a person in Germany who did some experiments, published a paper showing that with long-term activation, um, uh, the signal eventually habituated and went down. And so everyone became worried, and they, they thought, is this a problem with fMRI? Is this uh, sort of a, uh, does the signal habituate? How can we be, how can we be sure that it represents neural activity because it habituates like this? Uh -huh. So and then the question was whether it's hemodynamic or whether it's neuro neuronal, this habituation. Yeah. Turns out, the end. so our experiments, we actually measured uh, uh, flow changes as well. There were other techniques for measuring uh, fMRI signal changes. One was a flow-sensitive technique. Mm -hmm. So measuring flow and bold simultaneously 
uh, we, we actually had a task which was checkerboard, uh, just a boring checkerboard stimulus, tortured subjects. We had them staring at this thing for like 25 minutes straight. Um, <laughs> and it turns out our signal never went down. Our signal just stayed elevated the entire time. And so that kind of helped yeah. resolve that. So it turned out the experiments that Fromm did, I think, were with a video or something where the, the subject just became distracted or maybe they weren't paying attention as much or something like that. And so it was a neuronal effect that that fMRI measured that was reflective of that. But it wasn't like some sort of change in neurohemodynamic uh, neurovascular coupling. Uh-huh. So, yeah. um, so that um, really helps clear up for people that the the changes that you're observing are reflective of neural activity. And if you see changes in brain regions, it's due to the individual engaging in a different task, maybe to losing focus on the task you directed them toward. Exactly. And even if they're doing a task for 25 minutes, that's, if it stays elevated, it it typically, there's no hemodynamic habituation. Gotcha. Okay. So then in 1999, you joined the NIMH as a faculty member. So what drew you to NIMH um, and how motivated were you by the Institute's mission of translating basic research findings into treatments for brain diseases? Yeah. So so just before I went to MGH, I went back to MCW, Medical College of Wisconsin, Uh as an assistant professor for about two years. We had this program project grant um, on on fMRI. And it turns out that... uh, one of the external people uh, on that program project grant, Leslie Engelleiter, um, during our presentations to the external advisory board, um, uh, she kind of took me aside and said, hey, we got this great situation at the NIH, uh, are you interested in coming? And it turns out it was, a, it was a, even though MCW was a great place to be, NIH was, was really nice in a sense that uh, there were you know 20 or 30 researchers who cared about doing fMRI. And like you said, they, they care about um, not only understanding the brain, but also uh, uh, translating techniques for understanding the brain to clinical use. It's like a place where, where that's done. Yeah. And while fMRI still hasn't made that many clinical inroads, it's, it's definitely, uh, the, the spirit of that is, is definitely here. So that's what drew me to the NIH. One, it was, it was a great job where I was in charge of a core facility and also I had to have my own research section and, and yeah. uh, focused on methods of doing fMRI. So it was a nice environment to develop new techniques and also immediately have them uh, be able to be used by about 30 researchers who all used fMRI. So, okay. so it was nice. Yeah. And so since you've been uh, at NIMH, your group has been interested in continuing to push the technology uh, as well as use fMRI to answer basic questions in uh, human neuroscience. So uh, what are some of the findings that you uh, think are most notable, both in terms of the continuing to t- push the technology and then also um, answering some questions of, of neuroscience. Yeah, um, I think actually, uh, so yeah, so uh, so you're wondering what the what the findings are from my group or in general in fMRI over, over the course of the years or? Uh, more uh, from your group in particular, if there's uh, some papers that you um, uh, think are uh, yeah. were most satisfying to work on. Yeah, uh, I, I just I made a list actually ahead of time, but um, mm-hmm. uh, so so a couple of things that my group I think that we're we're sort of proud of right now is sort of developing sort of sort of pushing the temporal resolution, so finding ways of uh, for instance with task modulation sort of pushing the temporal resolution down to 100 milliseconds. If you could actually yeah. modulate the task in, a, in the, just the right way, you can get down to 100 milliseconds um, uh, temporal resolution. 
we do a lot of we're we're doing a lot more um, uh, sort of uh, high tempo resolution or also high spatial resolution in which we're trying to decode the signal. So a lot there's been a lot of work on fMRI decoding uh, in which you actually put a person in a scanner give them a trading set with a complicated stimuli, and then from subsequent stimuli, you can actually figure out what they're thinking. So we've done that with, uh, yeah. with, with pulling out like subjective sense of truth. Like, you know, we can, we can pull out, like if somebody, if you ask, it's kind of like lie detection in some way, we can do that. Yeah. Um, uh, other, other, other accomplishments are, um, we're really focused on looking at sort of like the linearity or the signal properties of the bold signal. So, mm-hmm. so we've been characterizing the non-linearity. So if you give a very brief stimulus, you get this large transient of a bold signal um, that's above like what you would expect from a linear system. And so that might have something to do with a neuronal transient that, that occurs at the very beginning of any stimuli. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so we've characterized that, we've mapped the spatial characteristics of that. Uh, we also develop paradigms such that you could actually move uh, and speak in the scanner. So it's one thing about fMRI, it's very sensitive to motion. Uh, that screws up the signal completely. So we've sort of designed paradigms where you're, you can, if, with, if you get the timing right, you're much less sensitive to motion. We've also designed what methods for denoising the signal, sort of uh, getting rid of all the artifactual signal changes. So it's wow. a little bit of the acquisition, things like that. Um, and then other things, uh, uh, we've also, I'm trying to sort of push the limits of what fMRI can do. So I'm also looking for other types of contrasts. Like, um, theoretically, yeah. uh, the MR signal is, is sensitive to uh, neuronal currents, the same thing that MEG is sensitive to. Yeah. So neuronal currents might affect the signal in a very subtle way, a very rapid way, and we're trying to sort of push that envelope to see if we could actually see it. We've been able to do that with cell cultures. So we have cell cultures no blood at all, uh-huh. and we apply trichototoxin to them, uh, uh, shut down the neural firing, and it turns out that that affects the MR signal. Wow. And we're trying to figure out exactly what that mechanism is, whether it actually is neural occurrence that we're sensitive to. So it would be great yeah. to then apply that to, uh, to people as well. We haven't yeah. quite gotten there yet. But, um, last thing uh, uh, we've been trying to do now is um, we're looking a lot at resting state fMRI. So resting state is one of the big revolutions in fMRI that came along. So up until about uh, 95, everyone was doing, 1995, everyone was doing activation-based fMRI. Then yeah. all of a sudden in 95, this one paper by Brock Biswall came out. So showing that, oh, if you just put a region of interest, a voxel, uh, if you look at the signal where the brain is doing nothing, if the subject's just lying there, uh, you see a signal, it looks like noise. Yeah. But it turns out that it correlates uh, most with the areas that are functionally connected. So you could actually then, so so people actually ignored this for about 10 years. They thought it was an artifact. They thought it was motion or something like that. And then finally, after 10 years, processing techniques came up and, and, uh, or it became more sophisticated. And uh, so now people are able to put people in the scanner, doing absolutely nothing and map out the entire connectivity of the, of the entire brain based on just doing nothing in a scanner. Wow. So, well, at a systems level, not actually at the, uh, you know, at the cellular yeah. level, but at a systems level, they make these beautiful maps of connectivity of the brain. So, so that's what we're focused on right now, either segmenting the brain based on the resting state or uh, trying to understand sort of the, what mental states sort of spontaneously occur 
uh, with a subject during resting state and trying starting to draw like things like biomarkers from this and sort of sort of classifying individual subjects and things like that. So so we're focused on resting state a lot. Yeah. I noticed you had a paper uh, in 2002 um, where you uh, imaged individuals with autism and then um, typically developing individuals, and you found that there was this correlation between age and cortical thickness and IQ that differed between normals and um, people with autism. Is this the type of thing that you know you want to uh, do more in the future and push to really try to understand maybe the brain bases of different diseases in living individuals? And maybe you can describe that paper if you... Um, care to? Yeah, that, that, so that paper was mostly, I mean, most of our applications paper come from collaborations with mm -hmm. other researchers, but so that would actually was nice in the sense that uh, uh, we were able to, I mean, just using MRI, you could actually make up, make pretty quantitative, accurate measures of, of cortical thickness, just because gray matter looks different than white matter, and so you can yeah. just look at it and, and characterize cortical thickness. Um, yeah, and this has been, this is one of many other papers by other people in the literature showing pretty decisively that there are group differences between a lot of different disorders. I mean, this is this particular one was autism. Um, and basically showing that, yes, it, it, that there's different areas that have different uh, lower thicknesses, and there's other areas that, uh, um, you know, a, a resting state signal might be a little bit different. But, but the more important thing there is that, yes, you hit on one, one aspect of yeah. what we're trying to do is, is understand on one side, we're trying to understand the mechanisms of autism. So from on the systems level, saying, okay, so it, it seems like there's becoming growing evidence, there's growing evidence that cortical thickness is kind of this dynamic yeah. thing that, that has a time constant of, of only weeks or months of, of being changed. So if you, people have demonstrated that if you actually have a, an intervention, like learning to juggle yeah. or something like that, the cortical thickness in certain areas becomes wow. larger. So it's kind of a a dynamic process and so this might represent sort of an atrophying of, of specific areas due to lack of input uh, that are, that's occurring so so that's one sort of hypothesized mechanism to explain differences yeah. in cortical thickness um, but also more importantly too we'd, we'd love I mean equally as importantly we'd, we would love to uh, use that as maybe an early detector or a, a complementary information on individual subjects to look at those with autism or those with all kinds of disorders, schizophrenia, yeah. whatever. Not only, not only cortical thickness, but things like resting state. So I think the big thing that's going on now in, in fMRI yeah. and MRI is going from large group studies in which conclusions are drawn about groups to go from there to then say, oh, I have this one subject, what group do they belong to? Uh, that's a much yeah. harder problem. and. But it's a much the, the clinical impact is immediate then. Then you can put a person in a scanner and say, oh, uh, you have early Alzheimer's. Even though you have no behavioral measures that, yeah. that show this, we can see that it's coming out or, or something like that. And what technological hurdles do you think are the uh, most important to get over in order to be able to really um, use fMRI as you're talking about in this clinical setting? Uh, a couple of them. First of all, uh, you have to, it has to be really robust to you know, your typical patient who moves in the scanner, who, so it has to be robust emotion. Mm -hmm. But also I think the, a big tactical uh, advancement, I think that we've been experiencing in the last few years are, is the onset of sort of machine learning techniques. So you take these massive data sets mm -hmm. and, and then you sort of apply machine learning to them to sort of figure out what the patterns are. Because across each individual, there's a ton of variability. Yeah. And it's start to begin to 
classify and really get our heads around this variability. This is the only way we could actually then put a person in a scanner, look through all that variability, and say, oh, this is beginning to look like a pattern that shows like you know early Alzheimer's or schizophrenia or uh-huh. whatever. So we so we need I think we need large databases uh, to to then use machine learning with really large databases that are well curated uh-huh. uh, to then start to draw inferences about individual subjects. So I can imagine like in twenty like twenty years, I mean it's not quite there yet, but in twenty years you could put a person in a scanner and they might have a, a an array of of these multivariate um, sort of templates in which you could say, oh, you can compare the fMRI signal against these templates yeah. uh, and then begin be able to say, oh, you have this probability of having this disorder, uh, something like wow. that. So that's at least the goal. So, so processing, post-processing is huge as far as much more sophisticated techniques that, that involve either deep learning or machine learning techniques. Yeah. And so you mentioned um, that some of the innovations that your lab has made in, in um, improving the fMRI technique have been to improve the temporal resolution, get it down to 100 milliseconds, and um, and then denoise. How were those, what technological advances were, uh, enabled those hurdles to be met? Was it the same challenges we're having now of machine learning and dealing with the variability or, or different? Uh, it's a little bit different. So one thing about MRI that's kind of unique is that is that uh, um, it's it's you, there's a lot you can do. It's, so it's unlike unlike PET uh, to some degree or CT or other imaging techniques. Yeah. There's a lot you can do or control on the acquisition side. So you can you can modify what sort of contrast you're sensitive to on the acquisition side and the processing. And I think that um, so as far as uh, for instance denoising. Yeah. We have this technique that involves, instead of collecting, so when we give an RF pulse to excite, instead of collecting one image, we collect several images all at once. We collect sort of a, this what's called multi-angle. Uh-huh. And from the signal characteristics of, of those images, we can then tell what's bold and what's not bold in terms of the, the, of the signal fluctuations. So then we can get rid of the non-bold signals. So it's all part of the acquisition. We need to have a novel acquisition to then process the data in a way that can denoise it. Uh-huh. So, so, so that was one advancement. Um, but as far as the 100 millisecond thing, uh, it sort of comes from an understanding that, that this lar- there's this large intrinsic spread of the signal in the brain just due to the plumbing, due to hemodynamic uh-huh. effects. So, so that was more of a paradigm to, to development, sort of more designing paradigms to say, okay, well, if I modulate the timing here just and then and sort of you know modulate the timing in such a way that uh, you can control for you can have the same hemodynamic delays overall but then just control a little bit for this these small timing differences then you can pull out the 100 milliseconds so it's sort of like sort of it involves more paradigm design uh, as far as that's concerned mm-hmm. um, yeah so pretty much all of the FBRI advancements uh, are involving um, some combination of novel technology, either high field or new hardware or different interesting pulse sequences, along with a novel application that lends itself to these applica- these these advancements. So, yeah. so even doing like for instance um, another example that we didn't do, um, but for Minnesota Troop actually doing going to seven Tesla, 
collecting extremely high resolution fMRI data at like 0.5 millimeter uh, voxel size resolution, they can actually get at imaging orientation columns. So they have a, uh -huh. this novel paradigm that, you know, with humans in the scanner, they're looking at a grading that's sort of like rotating. Um, and they, should, they can make these beautiful maps of orientation columns wow. in the brain based on this. So, so that's, once again, it's sort of the technology, but also uh, the paradigms and also sort of merging that with having a better understanding of the, of the signal, of like what, what the variance of the signal is, what the, mm -hmm. how well it behaves in certain contexts. So kind of bringing those together sort of pushes the technology forward. And so in your group, um, what are the backgrounds of uh, the uh, people who work in your group in, in terms of their disciplines and how do you tackle this problem of trying to improve upon the technology? So my group is unique in a sense that it's not your typical NIH group. Um, most of the people in my group are, are biomedical engineers. I have, I have some cognitive neuroscientists who have a, sort of a technical bent to them. And then I have some physicists who kind of care about computer science and processing. But mostly all the work is done by biomedical engineers or by electrical engineers. So, and so they, they care about processing. Uh -huh. They understand the brain enough to sort of look at it as a system to be probed in that sense. Um, and I think that, you know, things like uh, having a, a solid sense of what's of, of, of various processing techniques, I think is essential for, for pushing the technology as well. Like right now, we're, we're developing methods for looking at resting state data, where we segment the brain. Uh, and from the segments, we, we make what's called like a pairwise correlation matrix, where we take all the segments and see how they correlate with every other segment over time. And we have to do things like window that, move that along. Um, all these sort of methods are, are pretty yeah. involved. Luckily, there's really nice platforms like, like that are helpful, but not, they're not like the, the ultimate sort of thing. We, can just, we can't just plug it into a, a processing platform. So, so we have to develop a lot of processing. They have to be very comfortable yeah. with MATLAB, very comfortable with Python, things like that to sort of develop these processing techniques. Looking into the future a little bit, I mean, uh, as someone who's seen the field evolve over the past 20 years or so. Um, you talked about this a little bit about where you think the field will go, but if there's anything else that you just want to um, say maybe as a rallying cry to the people continuing to act in the field and push the technology, I mean, where do you think the state of measuring human brain activity will be in 2025? Yeah, no, I think actually, um, I, think a, a big, I think a big aspect of FRI, so FRI has not really made that many clinical inroads yet. Uh -huh. And so, and right now, especially like Tom Insel is our direct scientific director of NIMH. He's really big on, or, uh, and actually he just got a job at Google, as a matter of fact, sort of developing biomarkers as well. Uh -huh. So he's really, he really wants uh, neuroimaging to be translated to individual clinical applications. So that's a big aspect, and that has a long way to go. Uh, uh -huh. But I think it's making some headway in terms of uh, diagnosing in individuals with schizophrenia, for instance. Um, so that's a big thing. So that's so the combination of large databases, machine learning techniques, sort of developing these templates for understanding the brain. Other things, um, I think that like neural decoding. So like, for instance, looking at ongoing processes uh, in the brain. So if you put a person in a scanner, uh -huh. uh, you could actually, instead of just simple, simply designing a paradigm that's very simple, you can have them do just behave naturally, yeah. and you can see and understand everything that's pretty much going on, and interpret and come up with better ways for interpreting all the fluctuations that are going on. So that's that's growing. Uh, I think things like neural current imaging might finally be 
uh, about came they might finally come about. So you can actually look at specific uh, ongoing oscillatory frequencies like alpha waves or whatever. Yeah. But I think one other thing that's important too is that the another big part of of of, of imaging is sort of guiding neuromodulation techniques. So there's deep brain simulation, yeah. there's TDCS, there's TMS, there's all these things that or even focus ultrasound that are having sort of a, a larger clinical impact. I think that in about 10 years, MRI is going to be used a lot, or fMRI is going to be used a lot in conjunction with these techniques to, to help guide these techniques as well. So, so a lot of things. Wow, so might might be pairing measuring with uh, stimulation, and then I can see that really, uh, you know, becoming a clinically uh, relevant yeah, field on, exactly. on its own. exactly. Last uh, question before we'll do three short one, three quick rapid fire questions at the end. But um, do you want to give us a, a preview of your uh, seminar uh, at Stanford next week? Sure, sure. Uh, I think I'll talk a little bit. I, I'm mostly going to highlight what we've been doing most recently in the lab, and uh, we have a couple of results that are really intriguing. One is um, uh, the fact that if you if you average a lot, if you actually put one subject in the scanner. And instead of averaging across subjects, you, you average the a very simple task. We, have, we gave them uh, a simple like a visual attention task, and then they pressed the button when they saw something in a visual stimulus. Very simple. Yeah. After averaging for 10 hours, it turns out the entire brain, uh, if you average enough, uh, there's a lot more signal below the surface that's real. So the entire cortex becomes active in some way. And it's not your typical, like when you press the button, yes, you might get your motor cortex response and visual cortex response, but there's all kinds of subcortical and other cortical activity that's, that doesn't look like your expected response, but it's time-locked. And that's the entire wow. cortex. So that's, I'm going to talk about that. I'm going to talk also about, um, so we've been trying to develop looking at resting state to characterize ongoing cognition. So I'm having, so we have subjects doing specific tasks uh, over the course of like 30 minutes. And uh -huh. if we just look at the, re or not the resting space, but if we just look at the ongoing correlations in the signal rather than the yeah. activation, we can pretty easily tell what the subject is doing. But more, more interestingly, um, and we can tell with about 100% accuracy what they're doing. Um, so it's yeah. really accurate. It's very sensitive. But more interesting as well, it seems that um, related to the first part, that uh, um, with uh, ongoing cognition, it seems that there's a lot more places in the brain that show correlation changes as opposed to magnitude changes. So the old-fashioned old fMRI, you gave a task, the signal went up, and you mapped it. So uh -huh. now what's going on is that we're actually realizing that when you do a task, not everywhere in your brain does the signal go up, but some places it just becomes more synchronized. And, and we can actually see, and it turns out, using this technique, we're mapping a lot more areas that are becoming more synchronized uh, with the task than, than show up with just the magnitude changes. So another sort of revelation that there's a lot more going on than we've, that we've been measuring with fRI that we can actually still see with new techniques. So, so that's just two examples of, of what I'm going to talk about. The other technique is, another thing, the other thing I'm going yeah. to talk about is looking at uh, what I was mentioning briefly before, our multi-echo technique for denoising. So we could actually get a really high fidelity signal by you know separating the bold signal from the artifactual signal from this multi-echo yeah. uh, technique. 
Oh, that sounds great. Um, really, really look forward to that. And then finally, before we end, uh, we just have a couple of rapid fire questions you can uh, answer with the first thing that uh, comes to mind. Okay. So uh, when you first started working on fMRI, did you have any idea of how important a technique it would become? Uh, you know, I had some sense that it was important. Once we saw those results, we thought we, but we all sensed it was kind of huge if it was real. So. Yeah. Yeah. Second, do you have a favorite story about scanning a particular subject for an fMRI study? Um, I know that it's, um, though I've never been in a machine myself, I know that it's somewhat of an involved process and probably was more so back in the day. So is there a funny story or entertaining story about an interaction um, with yourself or other people going into the into the scanner? Uh, yeah, no, actually there's a lot of funny stories. We actually only, so the first story was, I mean, the, the first one is more, more the most interesting in some sense because it was like just the the, new, the newness of it all. But yeah. um, a couple of funny stories. We only got the scanner. So when we were scanning, it would, the scanner was used clinically uh, during the day. And so we only got on the scanner about nine at night. So we'd scan from nine yeah. until five in the morning. So you know, a lot of times we'd wow. throw the technologist in the scanner. We had a technologist as well that would sometimes come along. And and a lot of times, so we had, I was always amazed that you could actually, so we had him tapping his fingers. Uh, and I was, it was yeah. interesting because one time I, we had him tapping his fingers and I realized that that you could actually fall asleep when you're tapping your fingers. So he was tapping his fingers <laughs> and then I realized his arm was starting, starting to go a little bit more crazy and then it finally flopped down. So he actually fell asleep while he was tapping his fingers, which was interesting. <laughs> um, yeah, there's, there's other things that just related to uh, how many times. So this was also way back in the old days before we had even useful internet and so we actually are we weren't connected to our hospital so we act we had to save every i feel like an old man talking about this but we had to save everything yeah. on on uh 20 millimeter reel-to-reel tapes and then we would take it to ge yeah. to, to put it onto another tape that we can then take so i also collaborated with g medical systems that was right down the road and they they didn't they had no idea what i was doing but i was sort of helped i was funded a little bit by them and had scott hinks who was one of my advisors was a senior physicist but so i'd have to yeah. take it to ge translate from the 20 millimeter tape into another tape and then finally make it readable in the scanner and so all this was a long yeah. process for, for getting it going so so all kinds of stuff like that uh, things about you know all of our scanning like I said went on between nine and five in the morning so all kinds of crazy things happen so that is a uh, crazy <laughs> schedule I had no idea <laughs> um, great well thank you so much this was uh, really terrific to get to hear more about uh, your biography and your research, and we uh, really look forward to having you here in about a week. Okay. All right. Well, I look forward to being there. All right. Thank you. All right. Wonderful. Take care. All right. All right. You too. And thank you all for listening. Neurotalk is a production of Neurite West. Neurotalk was founded by Erica Senor, Mark Padalina, and Forrest Coleman. This episode was produced by Ada Yee, Luis Giam, Eddie Alberon, Andrew Gundren, Viet Nguyen, and myself, David Lipton. Adam Fuchel and Kyle Riley composed and performed our theme song. You can find all of the past episodes of Neurotalk and our radio show, Brains and Bourbon, as well as articles about everything neuroscience by visiting our website at www.neuritewest.org, spelled N-E-U-W-R-I-T-E-West.org. This is Neurotalk.